We're continuing our look at Amazon on this week's Behind the Idea, with the second part of our four-part miniseries. This week we're speaking to fellow Seeking Alpha editor Mark Pentakoff to break down Amazon's financial statements as a way to shed light on its potential. We asked him how Amazon fits into a value investor framework, and he crossed us over with a late edition Ben Graham quote. A little harder to be just a straight up Ben Graham hard-nosed value investor here. That, that may be the case, but let's not forget that Ben Graham in the 70s says, perhaps there's no safety but in growth. Then we dug deeper into how Amazon's strength bears out in the investment thesis, and he built out the case for the company. Every time they decide to go into a new industry with a new investment, if they're using the advantages that they've developed through specialization, if they're using their advantages that they've developed through having an information edge, then they can invest aggressively in that industry, shaping its future, while also sort of lowering the risk of their entire investment pool through additional diversification. And if this firm is doing this every single day, and, and this is like a tornado, and is gathering speed and strength, then you can see how, how they've created this sort of, sort of a, a relentless uh, investment machine. How does this strength emerge from the cash flow statement or the income statement? Do Amazon's financial books read as clearly as the ones they are known for selling? We discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. But first, Mike has something to say. Have a couple of housekeeping and shout out items to address before we get into today's episode. The first one is a special shout out to longtime Behind the Idea listener, Melanie Cohen, and a friend of the show. She took issue with our treatment of Jeff Bezos's description of headstands and points out specifically that headstands are actually, sorry, handstands are an important part of yoga practice and something that a large number of people actually aspire to. And so when we made fun of the handstand thing, we weren't properly taking into account the popularity of handstands. So Melanie, that's our bad. And, you know, I appreciate you sort of giving us an education about where that might have come from, the sort of yoga discipline, and how that fits into the overall Amazon picture. So thank you, Melanie. Uh, second special shout out goes to a user, a pseudonymous, who goes by T460S, which sounds like some kind of early model Terminator before they arrived at the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing. T460S left a review. Here is what the robot said. I like the podcast a lot. Who is the band at the beginning and the end? Five stars. Well, T460S, the band is Lifter Puller. They're a Minneapolis, Minnesota band that broke up, I think, sometime in the early 2000s or late 90s. And uh, Daniel and I just really love their music. And so we lead off and close every episode with a little clip that honors our shared love for Midwestern indie rock bands. You'll notice there's a little Easter egg. The first words of the song in the intro are the chain smoker called the stock broker. And that, of course, reflects the fact that behind the idea is about investment ideas and analysis. Okay. I think I've used up enough of the mana energy that uh, is allotted for 
openings and shout outs. So let's get into the episode. Welcome to Behind the Idea, the show where we break down investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today, we continue our coverage of Amazon, the retail giant. We're focusing in on the company's financial statements. How should investors use these documents? And what can we learn about Amazon's business by reading the balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow statement? And maybe we'll get into the statement of other comprehensive income. Not sure. Uh, But we have someone who's equipped to do that. His name is Mark Penikoff. He is a fellow editor at Seeking Alpha, just like Daniel. And Well, Daniel, you're not really an editor anymore, but close enough. Uh, Mark is a fellow editor. Daniel's a director of content strategy, whatever that actually means. Uh, Mostly, I think that means he comes on the podcast. But Mark is an editor, and he's especially equipped to talk about financial statement analysis with Amazon. Primarily because he's in charge of our project to convey the best practices in financial statement analysis to Seeking Alpha authors. So he's a bit of a financial statement nerd, and he tries to impute that nerddom onto... Oh, sorry. Welcome, Mark. Hi. I think I heard you. Oh, (laughs) yes. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. Good. He only mildly objected to being called a financial statement nerd. So I think that tells you all you need to know about his fit for this podcast. So again, we're covering financial statement analysis as part of our Amazon mini series. Uh, Before we get into the show, a few quick disclaimers. Nothing on this call should be taken as investment advice of any sort. As a disclosure, Mark is long Amazon, Daniel has no positions, and we'll discuss this in more detail at another time, but I am long PSQ, which is a ETF that is short the NASDAQ 100 index. I believe Amazon is a component of the NASDAQ 100 index. But anyway, those are our disclosures. So let's get into it. I'll give a quick background on sort of the issues that I encountered as I was trying to do some basic financial statement analysis of Amazon's most recent 10Q filing, which I think was the third quarter filing that came out just a few weeks ago. My main objective in looking at it was to see if I could just get a very high level picture of what Amazon's business actually consists of. We know of Amazon as this website where we go and we buy things and we put them in the shopping cart and then they arrive magically at our door one to two days later. Unless you, like me, bought a TV stand from a third party seller and it was just continually pushed back on the thing and you had to eventually cancel and then buy another one from some other company. But we all have these experiences of Amazon, but it's not just this monolithic consumer facing retail presence. There's also, there are several business lines and that's kind of where I want to get started is understanding Amazon as a business. My takeaway is that 
that stuff where you buy the TV standard and it comes magically to you is about 88% of the business, the kinds of things that we know Amazon to be. So Whole Foods, the online retailer in all its different wonders, and then about 12% of the business is the Amazon Web Services B2B cloud platform. And then breaking down consumer a little bit, about half of the total revenues come from the Amazon online store where you click around and get your TV stand, classic Amazon. Uh, 18% is that third-party operator that may delay shipping sometimes. And yeah, 6 or 7% is Prime. Another 7% is physical stores, which I think is Whole Foods. But Mark, what do you think? Does that sound about right to you? Or how? what do you think about just the overall Amazon business model? How do you break it down? Well, uh, I think you're right on the physical stores if we exclude some of their uh, small experiments, which have to be honestly minuscule. So we can, those are negligible. But, you know, I would, I would maybe put one asterisk in there. For instance, I think that within their online business, their online stores is probably their Amazon business operation, which according to the press release was at 2.5 billion uh, of run rate or 10 billion in run rate. So 2.5 last quarter, which would be about 4.4 of their sales. And that wouldn't really be consumer facing. And also, you know, in addition to Prime, of course, they also have Audible. And I think they have a couple other small subscriptions that I would have a hard time imagining that those are very large, but it's possible that Audible is a billion dollar business, possibly. Uh, I'm sure that might be disclosed somewhere. I'd also just say that when it comes to their third party sellers, and I'm not entirely sure about this, but I believe they provide services as well to their third party sellers. And insofar as that's the case, one might consider that to be business to business as well. Mm-hmm. So, so that's probably the addendum I'd attach to that. You mentioned a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. I think just to give overall context of the big picture revenue, I think the nine month top line figure total revenue was $160 billion. So just to give listeners some perspective, on kind of if we talk about $10 billion run rate revenue here or there, that's a part of a just a very massive pie. So at least for me, I have to kind of mentally adjust when I'm trying to get my arms around Amazon because of just how humongous the thing is that something that would be really great for a sort of mid cap company may wind up being kind of a very, very small contributor for Amazon. So that's correct. And also, you know, one other challenge with uh, talking about Amazon is it's always growing. And so some of these segments were only trivial a few quarters ago, and now they're all of a sudden becoming almost 5% of their business. And so in addition to just like throwing out the numbers, it's like these numbers are going to, the composition of their business is going to change because they're investing in so many different uh, segments and markets. Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to kind of drill in on that from two angles. One is that if you imagine Amazon's business as a pie chart and you're talking about the revenue, then you're talking about a pie that you can like see growing in radius in real time. It's just what 
what is the year over year growth in revenue? It's like 30% somewhere in there. It's this massively growing. 37% so far this year. 37% growth year over year for, so this, and then within each of those pies, as Mark says, the slices are like constantly sort of convulsing and moving around based on the different ones. And there are new slices being added and slices being just cut entirely. So I think that's one of the challenges already that we're encountering with Amazon, just in terms of getting your head around the business via the financial statements. Another is Alexa is probably trivial to the overall business. I think there's a kind of homunculus thing going on where what what people think Amazon is the different weightings they give to how salient the business lines are is like very hard to match up with what it looks like at any given moment on the financial statements. Things that everyone knows Amazon has or does like the Kindle may be vanishingly small. So the amount of attention something gets may not even come close to matching what it is. Um, that brings me to my next question for you, Mark, which is, what are the things that you think we can actually get out of the financial statements? How do you handle them in such a way that you do get a picture, a more accurate, accurate view of Amazon's business operations? Uh, that's a great question. I think to a certain extent, it's hard to get pictures on profitability, for instance. I don't think any of us know where margins will shake out uh, whether they're cash margins or gross margins or profit margins, I don't think anyone really can use the financial statements to to determine that. You can use that as sort of a a crutch, I suppose. But in a certain sense, they don't tell us very much about profitability. What we do know about Amazon is that it's day one and that they're continually going to be attacking new markets and taking advantage of the skilled workforce that they've attracted to the company to build out new operations in new markets and sort of increases increasing the slices of that pie, growing the pie and increasing the number of slices and the size of each slice and making everything sort of continuously convulsing. <laughs> and, and so in that context, we know things are going to convulse. They're going to convulse. <laughs> things are going to change. But I think honestly, growth rates is probably the most important part. So growth rates of new uh, segments that they've introduced, growth rates of new products, I think that's honestly the thing that everybody's looking at, which is one reason Amazon has come off from its from its very, very high highs. And and I think it's also to a certain extent gross profit of these segments, if and when these are broken out, which I don't really think they're broken out very well. But broadly, if if you're trying to figure out the profitability of Amazon, I mean I think that's a that's very opaque. It's very hard to Got it. Yeah. And just to give listeners background, as we're recording this, Amazon is right around 1670 a share, something like that. And it's off its highs around the 2000 range. So you mentioned growth rates and you mentioned that people are focusing on that. So do you break those down according to different segments or what are you looking at when you, when you look at Amazon's growth rates, Mark? Well, I'm looking at sort of a continuation of their broader strategy, which is introducing new products and new segments and then growing those segments uh, as fast as, as they can. For instance, I'm not that 
concerned personally about the slowdown of their on, online core retail business. Because I think that to a certain extent, I think that's something we expect. I think that you can tell that they're setting themselves up to grow via physical stores more increasingly in the future. And they're also going to become an increasingly, you know, they're already a tech company for sure. And they were a tech company the entire time. But I think we're going to see more and more services built out from a really like engineering, technical engineering, software engineering point of view. And so I would be looking at the newer segments, how those are growing, what new products they're introducing in those segments, the size of these markets that they're going after. Uh, and also, you know, I, of course, I still care about the growth of their core online business, but I don't think that's where the bulk of their growth in terms of their really fast growth is going to come from in the long range future. I, I want to ask about the sort of further, if, let's, let's say we're taking the income statement now and working further down the line. The two things I sort of have in mind are there. I saw something, so somebody just posted this on Twitter. These, the Amazon actually posted higher gross margins this quarter, I think than Apple. And I think that's sort of, it's one of those sort of cute things that spins the narrative on its head. But the reason I bring it up is that I'm wondering how much are you watching for operating leverage, gross margin leverage, or whatever else? And how much do you care, given how famous Amazon is for reinvesting everything, how much do you care about things like the mix or where, what's, I mean, you're talking about how the newer the newer stuff is supposed to drive growth, but how are you, how do you think about like, what's your view on that stuff? How do you, how do you handle, is it all about revenue or are you watching the other lines as well? Well, I think the different markets they're in are going to have different sort of financial models in terms of where their gross margins are, where their profit margins are. And because of that, we should broadly expect Amazon's gross profit margin to be sort of increasing over time. And as well, as their online retail business grows, you should expect that gross uh, margin for that specific business to also increase. I mean, if, if it starts growing pretty slowly, they should be monetizing it to an increasing degree so that they can fund other investments and increase their reinvestment rate. I would wait. I want to stop. I want to stop there. Are we are we sure about that? That's surprising to me, at least. Like, what's that? Um, I, that the if I heard you right, the online selling business, you'd expect gross margins to widen. A little bit, yeah. Or, or you know, a better way to say right. it is is not actually gross margins, margins overall. And that could okay. that could come through in gross margins, which would mean that they're that they're marking up the products more. But it's it's really I really should say margins overall in their core online retail business. Got it. Okay. That's yeah, that's one thing. I mean, I'm kind of a gross margins guy. So I'm just looking at some I, what's interesting to me a little bit is that it's hard to take Amazon's entire business and draw many conclusions because it is this growing, pulsing <laughs> pie. But, but like, you know, Costco has, Costco is a cost focus. We think of Amazon as being cost focused and the gross margins on Costco's sales are tiny, right? They're like 10, 12, exactly. 15%, something like that. If you, if you look at Walmart, which might be a better comp for Amazon, certainly they directly compete in a lot of mar markets. You see a 25% gross margin 
What's interesting to me is that we have this, we have this, if you're just looking at the gross margin line, particularly, you already see, you already see that there are some contributors that are immensely profitable. I think everyone sort of just assumes, or maybe it's even proven that uh, web services is just this cash machine. Um, but nevertheless, the, Amazon's growth margin, gross margins are already sort of more attractive than those of these other businesses, right? They're in the like 30%. No, I, I, not quite. I I think um, they're as a consolidated business, Amazon's gross margins are sort of becoming more like actually. So in the most recent quarter, for instance, Amazon's gross profit margin was higher than Walmart's. I think though you have to tease out the fact that some of it is their uh, AWS businesses and they're also increasing their subscription businesses and advertising. And those things are going to probably have much higher gross profit margins. Ah, uh, yeah. Advertising. So all the serv- services segments are just these really. Well, and the meme attached to that tweet I was talking about was talking about third party seller services, because when you think about those, and this might be the story for Alibaba and or eBay. They don't have to care. Amazon doesn't necessarily have to carry inventory or have cost of goods for those. So all they're doing is providing a service as far as shipping or just hosting those products. And then they get to rake in their whatever cut, 10, 15% cut they get on the sale. And so I think that's a big source of gross margin because they've probably figured out ways to do that with at to deliver those services at relatively low incremental cost. Exactly. Uh, I'll just add on, on the third party sellers. The other thing that those, uh, the other like function that that business provides besides, you know, obviously increased revenue is it helps with their like utilization of their huge fixed investment in their uh, distribution plants and their logistics network. Yeah. Okay. I think I'm arriving at a kind of insight here which is that you have this company that by reputation competes on speed and cost and customer service. And you wouldn't think that pricing power was built into that because if we go back to the homunculus, what people like you and me consider when we just think about Amazon in the abstract is this website you go to and stuff gets delivered to your door. That's only 50% of the top line of Amazon. But it's really an important strategic component because from that, Amazon derives all these customer insights and business intelligence, and it has a giant foothold in terms of just the marketplace of everyone who uses the internet to conduct business. And then I'm starting to begin to see how there's synergy between that sort of core unit and then all these rapidly growing pizza slices that are around the edges, like web services or these subscription products that are higher margin. It's starting to make sense to me why Amazon has this kind of gross margin buffer, even if you would at first glance might compare it to a Walmart or a Costco because of the way that it approaches the customers in that business unit. So, but but let me put that question to the two of you. What what strategic 
and competitive advantage or disadvantage can you kind of see playing out in the financial statements in particular? Uh, I'm thinking income statement and balance sheet maybe in particular, but Mark, what do you think you can sort of tease out from the financial statements in terms of Amazon's positioning? Well, I think that the financial statements confirm their overall strategy. And so if you take the sort of approach that you're that they're trying to spin off all these businesses to take advantage of their past investments in infrastructure, but also their uh, investments in their specific talent pool. And they're trying to leverage all these things that they've, they've made. You would expect revenues to be increasing. You'd expect to see new segments, new products. You would expect to see margins increasing over time. So, you know, I think that when it comes to Amazon, you, I personally use their financial statements to sort of confirm that everything is going well within the business, that their strategy looks like it's continuing to pay off and continuing to work. You also, of course, have to use the financial statements to help you gauge uh, how to price uh, security, of course. So I would say that that's, that's where you see um, their competitive advantage within the financial statements specifically, is you see their, their strategy that they talk about. Um, and you see their product releases flowing into the, the income statement and through the cash flow statement. And, and I'd add just one other thing, which is that mm-hmm. if you think about how high flying the Amazon stock is and you think about their cash margins on their business, they, because of how respected a business that they are and given the perception of the sort of credit worthiness of Amazon, they're able to access the credit markets for debt, for probably really attractive leases. And I don't think they're going to sell stock, but their high-flying stock also could be a tool to help them through. And, and you see that, of course, with their cash flow and their investments and their operating leases and their capital leases on their cash flow statement. That's interesting. Two, two things jump out at me from that. One thing is that what you said at the beginning of that comment was that you the financial statements are a confirmation of the business strategy. And you can, I kind of would reword that to echo an insight I had as I was going through these. I look at, you can look at financial statements of certain companies without knowing what the company is or does and get a lot. You can almost guess what they are. So like a biotechnology startup will have a lot of positive cash coming in from financing activities, and then it will be burning a lot of cash from operations. It'll have negative net income because they're basically trying to develop a technology they can bring to market years into the future. In the meantime, they're going to be in the dip of that business cycle. Similarly, some retailers or others, you're just going to see a mature business with uh, narrow, narrow profit margins and maybe a levered balance sheet. Amazon, it's hard to come at it without the context and see what kind of business you're dealing with. And I think what you said kind of echoes that in that to make the best use of the financial statements, you need to have all this insight about Bezos and the growth strategy and what the company is trying to accomplish with its human capital. Do you think there's some danger there in in terms of That's, you sort of are asking investors to use a lot of qualitative narrative aspects of the story as a lens to look at 
the financial statements. A little harder to be just a straight up Ben Graham, hard nosed value investor here. That that may be the case, but let's not forget that Ben Graham in the seventies says, you know, there's a quote from him that goes, "Perhaps there's no safety but in growth," and and you know that's at the very end of his career, and and you know Warren Buffett thinks that Ben Graham was starting to sort of lose interest in the stock market, but. No, I would just say that. So that was a sarcastic thing that. Ben no, Graham I think said. I, I think I think really... Ben Graham meant it. I think, uh, but he also he was also taking less interest in the stock market at that time. No, I would I would say that it's not just narrative though. I mean, the narrative is incredibly important. The narrative is important for the reputation, the credibility that is given to Amazon because their reputation and their credibility brings really talented people to them. It brings trust when the government wants them to run their AWS. It makes businesses think that it's probably a good idea to move their, their enterprise software systems onto a, a hybrid, hybrid solution or a, a cloud solution where they have, they're using the computer resources of Amazon. So these reputational narrative aspects are, go way beyond just it being sort of a story that's told about business. And, and that goes for Bezos himself as well. He, his, his, you know, demand for high quality work, these things, it, it is on the one hand, this meta narrative about the firm, but it, the narrative about the firm doesn't work if it's not true. And, and so I think when people bet on Amazon, they're betting on the management team that Jeff Bezos has built up. They're betting on their ability to find new avenues for growth but also to adjust if things go wrong. And if you look at Amazon, they make a lot of, uh, they, they test out a lot of new fields and products and many of those don't work out. So, but they don't have to work out the way the math works. You can have a hundred percent failure if you have gains that are huge, uh, in other, in other directions. So it's this meta narrative, this reputational credibility aspect is, is just so core to their competitive advantage. And. And it feeds on itself year in and year out. It's a circular prox- process of cumulative causation. And they will just Whoa. have, yeah, <laughs> it's a term from heterodox microeconomics. No big deal. I feel like you crossed me over with the Ben Graham quote and now you're 360 <laughs> dunking on me with whatever that cumulative qu- causation line was. Yes. Yeah. No, the, the, the point just is that like, Welcome it's not just <laughs> reputation. It's so, it, it's not just narrative. It's, it has to be true. It has to be true. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to I want to go on that because I think that really segues into what I think is one of the key things. So we talk about this um, cumulative narrative of causation, and we and Amazon has been you know ripping higher. We've had a dip recently, but someone posted on Twitter recently, and I was trying to talk to Brad Stone, who we had on the podcast the other day, author of the Everything Store. Uh, shout out to Brad Stone. Thanks for coming on. Nice. There's a post on Twitter. It was just like the drawdowns in Amazon are buck wild challenging. This is a stock that can go down really far, really fast. And we're, you know, neck deep into bull market here in Amazon shares and just in general. I'm wondering about sentiment flipping, the narrative decomposing, what that might look like for investors. That's one thing. But the real point I want to get to is is more on Bezos terms specifically, which he's said at the outset, 
I'm going to maximize the present value of future cash flows with Amazon. He has a notoriously long-term picture for the company. Typically, businesses grow and grow, and then eventually they mature, and the capital does get returned to investors. How do we look for that scenario playing out in Amazon? Is there a hypothetical where they lever up the balance sheet and they, you know, a lot of people talk about how there's all these CapEx investments that could eventually be shut down and then Amazon becomes a giant cash machine. How do you picture that playing out? Do you think, do you th- or is there this a perpetual growth machine that never has to hit that point in time? It's enough for investors to be able to imagine. Well, I definitely don't see indefinite growth only because I feel that all institutions decay. But I also feel that in any sort of reasonable investing time span, I think that we will see growth from Amazon. Bezos is a young young man, for instance. And is he? he's How pretty is young. He? Uh, he, he's go he's gonna be gone for a long time. And I think he's fifty four. You know, I think is that a young man? That's a young man. That's a young man. That's a young man. <laughs> that is a young man. <laughs> <laughs> he is. He's got. He's got. He's got a good he like twenty years in, at least. Look at that healthy head of hair. <laughs> <laughs> no, but well, and and because he he'll tap into some Im- immortalizing technology. <laughs> he, he looks like he will. He'll that's for sure. Like a robot. His head will be on some kind of robot spider. And it, we're getting a little off topic, but <laughs> we're a little back off, to the, okay. Off so back to the monetization and eventual return of capital question. You you land that the it sounds like the long the long run's still well off, and you're comfortable with that. Yeah, I think so. And also, I think that the the technological prowess of the company is only I think now becoming evident. And I think that they have they've made investments in a whole bunch of other things that just haven't really come to fruition yet. I think. And so, and so I, and I believe in the process of the management team and I believe in the quality of, of their process. And so I would not be surprised at all if, if we see them uh, branching out into fields uh, of growth in the next couple of decades. For instance, um, you know, more technology in the home, perhaps robotics, perhaps all these other sort of futuristic things that will probably eventually come to pass. Well, I'd like to just go back to the statements and to the question that Mike had posed earlier about the what do you read when you look at their statements. One of the most famous advantages that Amazon has is this idea of operating float and negative working capital. And and just looking at their and to Mike's point about where Bezos focuses, the first statement they have is the cash flow statement, which I think is relatively unusual. I see balance sheet first more often and then income statement. And they have, so you see, so I guess there are a couple things that I wanted to point out and then ask about because I think they they get raised a lot. So you see specifically every period, they have the three-month period, the nine-month period, and the trailing 12-month period. Every period, working capital looks to be negative. If, if I'm understanding that, I, I may be misreading that, but you know, inventories, accounts, receivables tend to outweigh accrued expenses in every of those periods. You're seeing nice growth in operating cash in each of those periods. 
CapEx is growing in each sort of year over year or comparison. There's a big acquisition for Whole Foods that shows up in these statements that is going to kind of cycle out. And as I kind of go down, I see that they are now starting to pay off debt, whereas they raised debt a year ago. And I guess, so my, my questions are how, how important is that to their business? Is that something that is unique? Is that something that will persist as a fundamental advantage? And then I'm also curious about the capital leases that you mentioned, Mark, because I think a lot of people who go beyond the first level thinking of Amazon is expensive. This is a bubble to hold on a sec. Let me go a little deeper. And we've got listener questions about this specifically was, wait a second, they've, they've got all these capital lease obligations. Are they accounting for, they, they're accounting for them legally, but should we be factoring them into our analysis of their free cash flow? Because that would swallow up a lot of free cash flow. Like how should we be thinking about it? So I guess my question to you is, about the working capital and also about the sort of capital leases, any other leases and how that factors into the picture for Amazon. Yeah, no, those are, those are excellent points about the, their uh, balance sheet and their incomes or in the cash flow statements. If you, so I, I, I think that it is like an advantage, but it's not sort of uh, their core advantage. Maybe I'd, maybe I'd put it like uh, it's a, it's like a, it's like a, a symptom of the fact that, they are able to win the trust of the markets and they're not worried about having to have access to a ton of extra uh, working capital for any particular reason. And I'd also add, you know, if you look at Amazon versus Walmart in terms of who uh, has more sales per assets, I'm pretty sure it's Walmart by, by a pretty good degree, which is to say that, you know, Amazon is really efficient with their capital, but you could put it, you could look at it in some other ways and say, well, maybe Walmart is actually more efficient with their capital. I think Walmart has negative working capital as well. So, so I think that, I think that what they're trying to play is more like a, a non-increasing situation where they don't need to build up their come in, capital. Wait, uh, wait one second. Th- Sorry to interrupt, Mark. I have 2.48% asset turnover on Walmart and I have a one point something for Amazon. Is that a fair way of looking at revenue to sales to assets or? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay, so Amazon, so Amazon's a little bit behind there. There could be reasons for that. There, I think. Yeah, I, I think that's because of uh, the way their AWS business works in terms of the sort of composition of assets to sales and then their profits on top of that. But mm-hmm. I would have to sort of dig into that yeah, a lot deeper. Yeah. To the question about free cash flow, so I think there's. I have two thoughts on that. First. Capital leases, from an accounting perspective, are basically installment sales. So in my view, you have to take out capital leases if you're trying to arrive at a value that is sort of free cash flow or the residual cash flows of the business generated. Because you have to assume that that basically they would have they they chose to do it in an installment sale fashion. And that's basically a capital expenditure. At the same time, I think that if you were to Look at Amazon and, and try and calculate their free cash flow that way. I don't necessarily think that is an accurate reflection of their potential profitability. So, so it's really, it's, it's worth doing the calculation. So you know what sort of cash they're bringing over between periods that they can work with in future periods. 
but I don't think it's necessarily an accurate representation of their cash profits because of how much um, they're investing in the business. So where do you land on the treatment of the capital leases then? Do you look at the free cash flow inclusive or exclusive of those? Or do you look at both and try, how do you approach it? So I, I, so there's the, they also, they have operating leases and they have capital leases. And I subtract the capital leases from their operating cash flow along with capital expenditures to arrive at free cash flow. But I don't do that for their operating leases. I, I think it's maybe debatable whether I'm right on that. I don't necessarily think there's a perfect answer for that, but that's how I would approach it. Okay. I just, I'm going to throw out a kind of less informed opinion just because why not? Uh, I feel like the float and the, the working capital, I think Mark hit it pretty well by saying it's a, it's a sign that Amazon has a lot of confidence from the markets and maybe also that their suppliers and their What's the opposite of that? Their customers are sort of forced to work with them on their terms in a similar way. And you mentioned Walmart. Walmart is notorious for being able to eke out all sorts of concessions from uh, their their suppliers. I think maybe something similar is going on there. But I also, I don't know, just intuitively, this negative working capital, how much of a benefit is that? I guess it depends on the duration of the cycle, but I wouldn't build a business around delaying payment to suppliers and collecting from customers early and trying to capture a capital return just on that, unless there were really long cycles. I don't know. I feel like that's something that's interesting and people kind of grab onto, but may not be that important to the overall business. Daniel, do you want to answer me? I think for a business the size of Amazon, it may not be that like at this point, it may not be that need of a advantage. It may, it may be more of a, an artifact and it may be something that I had in my head from preparing for our call with Brad and just sort of the, because that came up in the book as well. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I hear, I, I, I like we could come up with trivial reasons why subscription businesses, for example, are attractive because in part because of this. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. It, it could be that it's just not that important to the Amazon story anymore. All right, Mark, let's do something a little bit. Let's try something that has not been tried before on uh, Behind the Idea. I just have some key ratios queued up from the Seeking Alpha quote page. And this is a good time to just mention that Behind the Idea is brought to you in part by Seeking Alpha Essential, which provides subscribers with all sorts of useful valuation and uh, tools and access to our archive of conference call transcripts, as well as our archive of author-generated research and analysis. So I'm going to dial on over to the Seeking Alpha quote page and just throw a couple. We've covered gross margin, but I want to cover some other sort of uh, performance metrics and just get a quick take from Mark on some of these. So first on profitability, we look at return on assets at 6.88%. Does that have any, what does that say to you? And then I'll tell you what I thought. 7% return on assets. 
it's to me it's irrelevant because uh uh the the profit number that's divided by assets there is sort of suppressed by their like you know insatiable growth okay i i'll just give another when i saw that number it was surprisingly high to me i thought that return on assets would be a lot lower it's actually and I was thinking in terms of like buying a house or something that would be a low return on assets for no, it would be like, it just seems like a, a normal capital return uh, in terms of net income for a, a business that's sort of notoriously weak on the net income statement. So I just thought that was interesting, but uh, if you want to throw it out, that's also, I think totally. Well, defensible. well I'd also, I think, yeah, I think the challenge is that is the fact that, they're investing so much and that really makes it so that their profit margins don't, they don't really tell us very much. An ROA of, of 6.8 could be also excellent if the firm was highly leveraged as well. That, that brings me to a question. We'll do another lightning round ratio in a second, but someone on Twitter the other day, and we'll give credit in the article if we can dig it up, uh, just put out the theory that, you know, there's, there's this working theory that Amazon will be able to shut shut off CapEx at some point, and that's kind of the path towards these massive returns to shareholders, and that'll show net income will start going up when it sort of reduces its uh, expenditures related to sustaining its level of innovation. Uh, this person was saying that that's kind of, there's a, there's a case that that's not necessarily going to hold true that Amazon is actually going to continue to have these narrow profit margins indefinitely because it's just a required component of their business model and some of the other attractive aspects of their business, like the high margin businesses that they can generate are dependent on continuous investment. That's certainly something we see in the pharmaceutical industry, for example. The protected IP is the product of a lot of research and development expense. Where do you land on this question? Is it, you know, is it relevant or is is this person thinking about this in the right way? Does it matter whether the net margins ever increase for Amazon or is that just kind of irrelevant? Well, I don't think it's irrelevant. I think that in Amazon's current, you know, if we were to look at the cash flow statement, uh, we were looking at the CapEx figure. You know, some of that is maintenance CapEx, meaning they would have to spend it to remain competitive. And some of that is growth CapEx. And I also happen to think that we happen to be living through a, uh, a pretty innovative time. And so some of this, some of the CapEx that's growth CapEx is also maybe maintenance CapEx to maintain their position. So I personally view Amazon as continuing to need to reinvest in their uh, existing plant and equipment uh, and software at a pretty, pretty high, high level. But I, I would also, you know, I, I probably would come down sort of a, a softer version of that, which is that they're going to have to reinvest, but they also have part of their capital expenditures today is definitely probably pure growth CapEx. And if you were to try and value the firm, you would sort of you know, exclude that if you're trying to sort of figure out what kind of uh, residual cash flows uh, the business can produce. Next ratio, debt to free cash flow, 3.95. Should this company be optimizing its balance sheet 
with a cost of five year notes at like two high two two point nine ish percent should Amazon start levering up and just going buck wild on the balance sheet to uh, earn out more returns? Or what do you think about what's an optimal level of debt for Amazon? Uh, it's a great question. I th- it's a great question because Amazon not, o- not only does use financial leverage, but they also have huge operating leverage uh, in their business. And they also, you know, he starts off the press release with the operating cash flow number, and then they subtract the capital leases, and then they subtract the operating leases. And, you know, what's left over is like pretty small amount. Yeah. Okay. And keep going. And so I would just say that um, I would say that they probably can lever up a lot uh, relative to their free cash flow, but I would also say that you know how much they want to do that is going to be determined by how they view the riskiness of the investments that they're making, because you know if they they have really good insights into the markets that they're investing in. Partially because, you know, they, they have people using the website so they can just really monitor people's behavior at a very, very high level. Partially because they can see what products are selling. Uh, some, t- some of their capital expenditures is into products that were originally done by third-party services and they are just literally, you know, attacking the submarket. And so some of their investments are probably from their perspective, extremely low risk. And, and I think that the amount that they should Think about their fixed cost leverage, their operating leverage, their financial leverage um, should be sort of relative to how risky they think the specific investments that they're making are. So it's hard for me to say, but I would say that they probably have they probably have more room to use financial leverage. But I also would personally feel that I wouldn't necessarily like it if they used too much more. But at the same time, I think that that determination can really only be made from the inside. And if you are sort of analyzing, you know, the six page memos on each of these investments, you know, that, that might, they might feel really comfortable with like going hog wild. So it's, it's hard, it's hard to say. Cool. Okay. Daniel, would you like to take us through a couple of listener questions? Thanks, Mark. I think that was a successful two round lightning round experiment on uh, uh, ratios. (laughs) I credit yeah. myself with a huge success, but Daniel, go ahead. <laughs> Good work, Mike. Thank you. Hey, you're welcome. So I wanted to first shout out Gaurav Kulkarni, who I think we've shouted out before, but who got us on the Amazon path. And 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 this so maybe I'll I'll use his his question to ask you, Mark, because I know you've you read a lot of Ben Graham, you read a lot of Warren Buffett. And so we'll go right to the valuation question, which is the bulk of his questions are, you know, he sort of, the stock keeps going up. He wrote this as it was probably at the same price it is now, but on the way up. And it seems like it's continuing to sort of take over the world essentially, but there are limits, international expansion. uh, They're not going to really get into China. They, India as, Brad Stone said is kind of a real battleground right now with Walmart and Flipkart. And so like, there's not so much white space left in the world for them. And so the question you talked about how growth is the key metric, but how do you, as somebody who has espoused value investing ideals, both on this podcast and I think in past conversations, like how do you get your head around that 
we, we've sort of talked about what the time frame is, but what is your sort of, how do you answer that? How do, what's your case for owning the shares despite the ratios that Mike didn't mention, but that are quite lofty for different valuation numbers? Well, to be clear, I, I don't think, I think it's over. I wouldn't pay today's prices personally. Okay. I, I think, I mean, I, it's, it's a really a story about the, the management team and, and the infrastructure that they've already built and being able to spin off new services, new products from the existing infrastructure. And I definitely agree that their, that their success internationally has been pretty disappointing compared to their domestic success. But I would also point to their tremendous success in building sort of software services and uh, also their set and their SaaS, their infrastructure service work. These things, I think, lend a lot of credibility to the idea that they're going to find new avenues in that direction, which will be attractive. And I also think that, you know, I am personally fairly, uh, fairly optimistic about their ability to build out a physical store network. They've laid out some plans that are pretty aggressive. The, their plans won't, won't be super materially, super material very soon, but I, I do have some confidence that the management team has the ability and financial flexibility to experiment with different retail models, which would dramatically expand their growth outlook. I mean, they might do the Sears thing where Sears started as a catalog and then switched over to stores. I know they just went bankrupt. So, but <laughs> maybe not the best example, but, uh, but also Sears was huge. They had a good um, run first though. So, yeah. so there's that when it comes to valuing Amazon, I think you, you have to take a, a stab at where you think their uh, long-term profit margins are going to be taking into account their various businesses. You can also do a sum of the parts, but, when I do those valuations today, I see Amazon as uh, a little overvalued, but not as bad as it was. I mean, I personally, I thought it was crazy that it was selling for a trillion dollars. Okay. It, I, I want to just pitch a sort of thought here about the, about how this frames with growth and value, because I think, and this isn't going to be super original because, you know, the internet is rife with, talk about flywheels, which is something Amazon has talked about internally in the past, compounders and everything else. But I almost wonder if it's with some of the things we've been saying, whether it's the negative working capital, whether it's like you said, are they building on their, what they do, the financial statements show that they're continuing to deliver growth and deliver their success or the way they came up with Amazon web services and sort of the advantages they have there. I just wonder if they've, I'm almost, to me, it almost feels like a, a tornado like they've sort of encircled everything and they can just kind of continue they've got a wall around them that they continue to build and add to because they've got so much momentum and so much they don't they the margins may not be super uh on the net margin line they may not be super deep and they whether or not they lever up like there are questions about their leverage as well but the it seems to me like the argument you would make is that they have sort of constructed this ability and this process and this management team, as you said, that kind of allows them to continue to sort of march towards adjacent fields and adjacent markets. And that's what makes them attractive, which is hard for somebody with a value orientation to deal with because we do just want cheapness and we do just want to be able to understand the numbers and to say, well, 
this is a 50 cent dollar bill or whatever else. And that's not, and we can, you know, we can talk about Buffett and how that he made the change and how important that was to their career. It was also a matter of the size that his investing pile grew to. But I just wonder if that's, and that I'm not making a longer short call for Amazon myself, but I'm just wondering if that's maybe the way to think about their advantages from a investing perspective is that it seems like they've kind of developed an invulnerability around what they do generally and that allows them to keep growing. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, what, the way I think about this is that if you think about the fact that investing is always uncertain, whether it's a fixed investment at a firm or investing in the stock market, the future is uncertain. And controlling uncertainty, there's not, you know, I don't think that there's like an infinite ways in which you can improve your ability to control for uncertainty. You can diversify, which you see Amazon doing and investors do. You can sort of specialize. And I think we are watching Amazon sort of specialize in certain uh, adjacencies to their current markets. You can try and shape and control the future, which you can kind of do by being first and in, in investing aggressively. You can have sort of an edge with a data advantage, which Amazon certainly has. And, and if you believe that Bezos has built a really strong team, you know, every time they decide to go into a new industry with a new investment, if they're using the advantages that they've developed through specialization, if they're using their advantages that they've developed through having an information edge, then they can, you know, invest aggressively in that industry, shaping its future while also sort of lowering the risk of their entire investment pool through the creation, through additional diversification. And if this firm is doing this every single day and, and this is like a tornado, and is gathering speed and strength, then, then you can see how, how they've created this sort of, sort of a, a relentless uh, investment machine. And when it comes to being a value investor and looking at Amazon, you know, I think there was a little bit of a moment, um, some time ago when the size of AWS and how that was going to shape the margins of Amazon was it totally recognized. And a value investor looking at Amazon could have looked at their growth and said, you know, maybe, maybe their margins aren't going to be like a uh, Costco or Walmart. Maybe they're, maybe they're not going to be huge or anything, but maybe they're going to be, you know, steps above that. And if you made that assumption, all of a sudden the business would look considerably more attractive. And, and I would say that people got a little too excited about that recently, but when you're, when it comes to valuing a firm that doesn't have a sort of like a big profit that you can sort of look at and point to, um, there's a number of firms like this. Salesforce sort of doesn't post gap profits. Netflix, of course, has profits, but they're, they have deeply, deeply, deeply negative cash flow. You sort of have to model in a conservative, but nonetheless possible and realistic profit margin on their revenue growth. And then in my view, you have to sort of uh, look at that and compare that to to rates and other investments that exist out there in the market, and then make make your call. Uh, so I think there is a way in which value investors can sort of translate an Amazon into a into the normal way of a value investor would look at a stock. But it's definitely one of those things where 
what instead of trying to buy something where you're getting a you know PE of six or PE of five or something, you're instead trying to buy at what you think is the lowest valuation the market would be willing to pay, and then sort of assuming that you will then the that valuation will stay consistent through time, and you will get the growth rate of the firm overall as your return on investment. If that if if that follows, so that's uh that's the way I personally think about translating growth stocks into uh, value stocks or into value investing, I should say. Okay. The, the way that Gaurav wrapped up that question, I think, or at least the way one reader wrapped up, the listener wrapped up the question of value investing approach to Amazon was simply, are we the only sane people left on earth? And I'll leave it up to listeners to decide whether Mark's response was sufficiently sane or not. Um, Want to go, Daniel, do one more question from our listeners and then. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to get, we got another listener who I don't think we got permission to name that listener, but they asked about, they were, I think, more skeptical about Amazon. If, if Garov's, Garov's comments sort of reflect loosely where we track, which is value investing, but sort of curious, Amazon curious. This was more, I think. <laughs> Amazon <laughs> curious. <laughs> it's okay. They were. Mom, dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not giving away my, my value investing card. So let, let's just focus it on the balance sheet because he had a lot of questions and I don't know if we'll get to uh, get to them in full, but in the balance sheet, sort of the idea that their stockholder equity is relatively low when you go to just pure tangible equity. Once you take off goodwill, I don't see intangible assets otherwise broken out, but I'm not sure if they're still broken out, but so you're having a leverage balance sheet that is so passe of what Mike said earlier, it's still a leverage balance sheet in this listener's view with a higher debt than equity shareholder equity that they have is primarily paid in capital and treasury stock retained there is retained earnings there so i'm not sure that that's totally zero and it's grown substantially this year but it seems like a lot of the capital over time is really just from raising funds over time and you so you have that sort of high leverage, but then even the the listener goes on to say you could stop all of their R&D, you could stop their amortization, you could stop their, you could sort of get, or not amortization, but you could stop their R&D and sort of their other growth spending and the margins would still be relatively narrow. And so I guess I'm just curious how you would sort of respond to the, the that sort of challenge where the where there does seem to be a limited, um, you can, if you look at it in that way, it does seem like Amazon is actually, despite all their strength, there is a little bit of a tight tightrope walking going there. So what do you think about that, Mark? Well, I think I think one of the challenges with using um, debt to equity is, is simply that since, since they haven't had a lot of profits, they haven't accumulated a lot of equity onto their balance sheet. And because also some of their uh, software, so, you know, I'm not, the way that software accounting works is complicated and I am not an expert. And I think that is probably a whole discipline unto itself. 
But my understanding is that only some of software development is going to be um, capitalized onto their balance sheet through capital expenditures. And another large portion of their software development, which is a core aspect of what Amazon does, is going to be expensed through the income statement and therefore reduce their profits. And because of that, they aren't, because they're not accumulating gap profits on their balance sheet, looking at the firm from a debt to equity standpoint may not just, it might lead you to come to the wrong conclusions about uh, their financial fragility. So I would probably advocate for looking at their, their debts to their cash flow, uh, either free cash flow or operating cash flow. Um, but no, I think, I think that, I think that these concerns are somewhat legitimate in the sense that if, if Amazon struck a string of bad investments, notwithstanding what I previously, previously said, you know, they, they aren't necessarily well set up to handle that. At the same time, I think that if you look at the sheer diversity of the investments they're making in different markets, I think that that dramatically lowers the chance of that sort of being being the case. Um, but I, th- I think the biggest part of, of this, when you're looking at Amazon's assets and their equity, is, is simply the fact that because they're not producing gap profits, they're not accumulating uh, equity on the balance sheet. And that's going to dramatically affect the way that looks. I just one have one comment to kind of chime in on I, in terms of the slashing different, you know, gap expenses and arriving at profitability. One thing that we haven't talked about much on this call, though Mark alluded to it, is pricing power. And I think that that's a piece of the story that is maybe floating around in the background for Amazon, but is not necessarily at the forefront at this point. And maybe they have to play a careful game in terms of, you know, what, what they can really get out of prime subscribers is probably a lot more than a hundred dollars a year. And that's probably true of a lot of their customer relationships. So that just occurred to me what you talk a lot about paths to increase profitability for Amazon on the cost side, but I think probably on the revenue side, there's a lot of uh, headroom there. That's right. I think, uh, I think that they're in a certain sense in the land grab mode and you could almost think the same thing with uh, Netflix. I mean, Netflix could charge more for their services as well, but, but they don't. I would, I'd probably just say one other thing about, about that that's interesting, I think, which is that, you know, Amazon, because they want to grow as fast as possible, they want to, you know, have as low a price as possible. While simultaneously, they want to make sure that they have more than enough capital, uh, residual capital coming in after they invest in everything so that they can sort of keep investing in, in more things and be increasingly prepared for opportunities in the future. And so you have these sort of two functions like hitting each other and optimizing, which is they want to have as low price as possible so they can grow as fast as possible and be as competitive as possible. And then they also want to have as high a price as possible so that they can get as much profit to reinvest into the future. And you know, it's this interaction, which is probably going to drive the way we watch, uh, the way they sort of choose their prices in different markets going forward. Awesome. I think we got somewhere. Although I also think that Part of the moral of this story seems to be that the financial statements for Amazon are tough and complicated, big pulsing <laughs> pies. And, and sort of secondary too, really. I mean, they're, they're sort of, 
which maybe is always the case, but they're sort of confirmatory to the rest to, like you said, Mark, the management and the sort of narrative and everything else. So I, I that that's just something interesting to me as well. I think there's a Berkshire. I'm going back to my Warren Buffett heir as Bezos is the next Buffett thing, which, you know, as we know, if that gets on a magazine cover, then <laughs> sell your Amazon. Not investment <laughs> advice, but there's something to this. It's a giant heap of different types of businesses where strategic advantage is often the focus over and above straight up cheap valuation, especially in the sort of second phase of the company's existence. I think we're at that spot here. Berkshire never gets it and multiples anywhere close to Amazon. But I think that there is some overlap in terms of just the competitive advantage, the relationship with capital markets, the reputation of the company. And I think that's kind of where we're aiming with a lot of our conclusions about looking at the financial statements. Berkshire seems easier to analyze than Amazon, but you know, I'm I'm a dork, so I can't really say for sure. But that lens may be useful across both companies and they're both success stories. No answer to that. Okay. Uh let's <laughs> let's wrap up the podcast then. Uh Mark, thanks a lot for joining us. I I think I got something out of this. Uh Daniel probably Yeah, did for sure, Mark. Uh, you know, if I did, he, he definitely did. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Mark. Okay. Let's go then. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. See ya. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this Behind the Idea. We're halfway through our Amazon mini series, and our next two episodes are big ones as we're talking to a reporter closely following the company and a famed investor and teacher to see how they think about Amazon. We're also going to throw in a special interview with Whitney Tilson and prepare for our next big event, the Case Learning Short Selling Conference in December. Subscribe to Behind the Idea on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Lipson. We'd love it if you could leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, and we will shout it out on a future episode. Email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with questions, feedback, complaints, suggestions, or requests for future episodes. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next time behind the idea.